Hey everyone, welcome to the Golfer's Journal podcast brought to you by Titleist, the number one ball in golf. My name is Tom Coyne. I'm a senior writer at the Golfer's Journal and I'm really excited about the podcast we have for you today. We always try to do something a little bit different here and I think you're going to find today's conversation is really informative and entertaining and a lot of fun. When I was a kid, I had this book of weird sports facts and I think I read it like a hundred times. I was obsessed with it. So for all you folks out there who love the History Channel or who get into tweets about obscure golf trivia or who just enjoy history at all, we've got a really fun show for you today. And if you're not into history, I think you're going to find it entertaining as well. Connor Lewis is joining us, and you might know him from Twitter. He's the founder of the Society of Golf Historians and the host of the Talking Golf History podcast. He's also a consulting historian for several prominent clubs that have hosted major championships, basically the guy knows his stuff. And today, I've asked Connor to join us to talk about not the long, boring bits of golf history. I read plenty of that already. But to discuss some of golf's more curious historical moments, golf fun facts and tales of the golfing unknown, if you will. And he's got a lot of great ones, like how can you have an ace and still lose a hole? There's a few ways, and it's it's actually happened. Or what have been some of the most outrageous fines and fine-worthy behavior in professional golf? Or how and where does golf start in America? Connor helps us solve some golf mysteries and share some history you've surely never heard before. So if you're into golf trivia or just want to impress your foursome this weekend with new tales of golf's unusual past, you're in the right place. But before we jump in with Connor, just a reminder that if you're out to make your own history on the course, we all know the ball you need to be playing, and that's the Titleist Pro V1 and Pro V1X. They've got more speed, precision, and consistency. We're always trying to get better in our game, as is Titleist, creating the best ball in golf year after year. Titleist wants you to prove your game just as they keep proving theirs week after week on tour. Thanks to all our listeners and subscribers, and hey, the holidays aren't that far away. Golfer's Journal subscriptions are honestly the gift that keeps on giving because they keep showing up in the mail. Uh, golfers, as we know, are pretty impossible to shop for. I'm impossible to shop for. I won't let my wife buy me golf stuff because it has to be the way that, that I want it. But a Golfer's Journal subscription solves that problem for sure. Thanks to the sponsors from the pages of the Golfer's Journal, and those are Link Soul, Scotty Cameron, Titleist, Links and Kings, Oakley, and New York Private Bank and Trust. Follow us at Golfer's Journal, follow me at CoinWriter, and do check out my new digital series that's detailing my travels on YouTube called The Lynx Life. And now let's take a stroll back to those erstwhile days of golf's past when the ball didn't go as far, but the stories certainly did. All right, folks, I'm here with Connor Lewis, better known to most of you on Twitter, perhaps, as the Society of Golf Historians. Connor, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, to join us today on the Golfer's Journal podcast. Hey, my pleasure, and thank you for taking a moment out of your odyssey to have me on. Yeah, yeah, it's quite an odyssey. I'm bouncing around. On this odyssey, I am bumping into all sorts of interesting history. So I have a lot of questions for you today and, th- and really fun stuff for us to talk about. I kind of want to start with the Society of Golf Historians. You are, am I outing you as the Society of Golf Historians? Because <laughs> yeah. on Twitter, no, it looks a not. little bit secretive. And, and you might think that there's a whole team of people with large tomes in front of them researching golf, but, but it's you. It is. Which is awesome. How did you become this, this source, this font of 
of golf history. I think, you know, Golfers Journal readers get some history from the magazine and and we're all I'm I'm a little bit of a history nerd, I suppose, but how do you get to the point where it goes from being like something you're you know, you're, you're curious about to, to actually becoming an, an authority on the subject. I, I'll never claim to be an authority. I know quite a bit. I'll just say that. Someone once asked me. For our uh, purposes today, you are an absolute yeah, authority. A, just, just when, <laughs> when, in doubt, when in doubt, make it up. And then if you, they think you're the authority, it goes by just fine. Uh, but no, I, I was in a, a golf chat about a month ago and, and somebody asked, I, I guess it was a group chat. And they were like, you know, what percentage of history do you know, right? And so before I even answered, there were people like saying 70%, you know, like 70% thorough in history. And I came in, and I was like, I don't know, like two? I mean, because there's so much, I mean, I learned something every day. So I, I don't even know what that number right. would look like. So, you know, I, I hesitate to say authority because there's always someone else that knows something perhaps more in depth. And I think that's the beauty of what I do if there is any beauty in what I do, specifically with the podcast, is bringing on, um, I'd call it next level experts that have spent maybe half their life researching one thing. Uh, I'm really good at understanding history from broad strokes, where to find information, knowing how to research it or find the experts. And putting all those pieces together, uh, I do that real well. And then having people on our podcast to talk about it, even better. I've always loved history. Um, it, it really happened about, uh, gosh, what was that, 11 years ago? Uh, 11 years ago, I was uh, living in Iowa, and it was the middle of the winter, and there used to be this golf dome in the middle in Des Moines. As a matter of fact, it's still there. And that's the only place you could hit golf balls in the state of Iowa when there was snow on the ground. So one day I went in, uh, one winter in 2008, might have been 2007, and they had this stupid like discount golf show going on. And so like, you know, it's like all the flamingo colored t-shirts and polos that couldn't sell during the regular season. Every golf shop just gave it to the show to sell at like 10%. Um, and I went in there, there right. were some guys, um, uh, Russ Fisher and Bill Reed in there with a bunch of hickory shafted clubs. And they kind of dared me to hit them into what was left of the range. And I hit a couple shots and I was hooked. And from that point on, literally hours uh, of every day I spend reading golf history. And for whatever reason, uh, Tom, I, um, it's the one thing that I might be a semi-savant in. Like when I read it, it usually sticks. I can't say that about anything. I can't say, I'll forget your name in like five seconds. It's Tom. Yeah, I got it right once. That's, well, you know. You did, I'll you did. You're already on a good path. Thanks, Todd. <laughs> Just kidding. Rim shot. I had to go there. Sorry, too easy. So yeah, that's that's ultimately the story. And then I, I played hickory shafted clubs for five years as part of research. And then I spent about a year and a half to two years just playing a uh, gutty era clubs. Because I figured if you're ever going to talk about pre-1900 golf history, you should know exactly what it played like. So I played gutty, gutta percha golf balls with smooth shafted irons with long nose drivers for about two years. Dude. That's, so I'm crazy. You're crazy. That's that the sounds like... Story. I know a, a fun project and I've played hickories and it is, it is a lot of fun, but, um, that, that can't be easy. No, it's madness. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I moved to Florida about, um, six years ago and the gut, whole gutty thing just got, I, I stopped because 
our, our courses in Florida were not made for that type of golf. It's more of a bump and run. It worked well in the Midwest on some courses. Oh, yeah. You're just firing gutties into the lake. You're just launching them into the ponds. There's so many cool things that we can talk about today, and we've talked about them a little bit already. But where I wanted to start, so I'm on this cross-country odyssey adventure for this book I'm doing, a course called America. And one of the sort of history mysteries that I'm trying to figure out is where and how does golf start in America? And why I say it's a mystery is because I'm just getting a lot of different stories from a lot of different places. And I want you to be the arbiter and tell me, you know, because, all right, so like yesterday, um, I'm up in Vermont. Uh, I played Dorset, which has the claim, they claim to be the longest operating golf club in the same location. Yep. Like 1888. Is that right? 1888? Right. Yeah. Something like that. So that, so that sounds interesting. But then, you know, you go to Chicago golf and they have their history. You go to, gosh, I played Savannah, you know, and they have like 1798 on their, you know, of course I had to buy that hat (laughs) because I mean, that is so old. Um, You know, I played St. Andrews and learned about the Apple tree gang and, and then I hear I'm in Charleston and I hear, well, this was where the first golf clubs to come to America were actually shipped to Charleston. So there's, I don't know where, where I can put my finger on. How does golf come to America? Well, it comes obvious through the, through the people that, are, that live here from Scotland. Um, you know, the earliest reference I've seen to golf, and some dispute this, uh, in the New York used to be ruled by, um, wasn't it New Amsterdam, I believe, right? prior to being in New York and part of mm-hmm. the U.S. territory, um, or British territory, yeah. I should say. And there is a, I published it some time ago on Twitter, uh, there was an article in, boy, it was long, I mean, it was before the British took control of it. So it would have been, I want to say, 1700s, 1600s of uh, an episode of golf being played in a park and through the streets. Uh, that's the earliest reference of the word golf, I think, that I found in the United States. I think the first golf course, that we know of was a place called Harleston Green, which oddly enough was in Charleston. Um, And there's pretty good records of newspaper reports of a ball or a gala held there with a golfing event at Harleston Green. So I think it's safe to say with the information we have now, Harleston was the first golf course. Now, was there one in New York? Nobody really knows, or were they just playing a ball and stick game and someone confused it with golf from uh, perhaps being you know through Scotland and seeing that game. Um, Savannah has a pretty good claim. I, I love the hat, by the way, but it's it's mm, perhaps a little disingenuous to say that Savannah Golf Club that exists today is the course or the club that was founded in the 1790s. Uh, that club was up and running for a very short period of time, shut down, and I believe the new Savannah Golf Club was, I want to say. 1890s. Um, and I think over time, they kind of borrowed the history, used the, you know, a, a typical old logo and slapped that on some merchandise, which same name of the club. So in its same area. So why not? Yeah, why not? But you're right. It's very confusing. I, I get into this all the time. Uh, sp- there's all kinds of dizzying, <laughs> dizzying claims of firsts. Mm-hmm. There's probably 51st. I mean, you'll have like the first 18 hole golf course. You have the first golf course in the United States. You have uh, arguments of the first golf course west of the Mississippi. 
which I did a a little analysis of based on research. There's I think 20 different courses that claim to be the first golf course west of the Mississippi. Yeah. And I believe I narrowed it down to two. Well, I've played three so far. So which ones did you find? Let's see. There's the one in Oregon. Uh, Gerhardt? Gerhardt, thank you. Uh, Ger- yeah, Gerhardt's an interesting story. I-, I think they have a claim to 1892, maybe two or three holes, maybe in 1892. There's not a lot of great, you know, heavy evidence on that. The best evidence for an 1892 course with a date is very early in the year, and that's in May. And that is a nine-hole course in my actual hometown, I didn't know at the time, uh, Fairfield Golf and Country Club in Fairfield, Iowa, which oddly enough had another golf course about 30 miles away in Burlington, which was established in the 1880s by a farmer of Scottish descent. And that didn't last very long, but it's uh, that would in fact be the first golf course west of the Mississippi would be the one in Burlington because it's from the 1880s. And I believe there's a claim uh, in California for an 1890s course, but I don't think there's much substantiated fact with that more than lore. And that's what you get into sometimes with golf history. So many claims. Yeah, there are. Yeah, so many claims, so much history. I think it's, it's really one of the fun things about this trip I've been doing is that every course does have sort of its own history or its own curious fact it, its own curious event that you know this interesting thing happened here and, th- and that's what we're going to talk about today so i had a big match today i played at the mount rushmore uh golf club here in in new hampshire went very well for our side i will say and then a couple of weeks ago i actually got to go see a match club which was a real thrill and actually golfers journal readers will learn more about that soon in an upcoming issue on the subject of match play I know you have some stories about some very interesting outcomes in various matches. All right. So I have three stories. I kind of put this out on Twitter like three or four days ago before we spoke. Um, I, I tried to ask uh, people that followed me to name different ways you can lose a match play hole by holing out for a hole in one on a par three. So I have three scenarios today for your listeners of how to lose where you could lose the hole lose the with hole a hole in with one. You getting the hole in one. So I'm playing Tom. Tom gets a hole in one. Likely. Somehow he loses the hole. So the oldest one, fantastically enough, is over 150 years or just about 150 years old. And it dates back to actually the year of 1870. There was a gentleman by the name of Robert Clark. He's playing in a match on the ancient links of Musabra. So Musabra, if you don't know this at home, had, uh, has hosted six open championships. And has had five open champions. It's the only uh, open championship course to be a nine-holer that held a open championship for everyone at home. So they're uh, finishing up their round uh, on the ninth hole, which was a brand new hole in 1870. It was an eight-hole golf course until 1870. And the hole that they added, the ninth hole, was what was called back then a one-shotter, or what we would call par three today. So... Clark here, Robert Clark, he's playing with his partner on the final hole, and their match is all square. It's all up to this final hole, which is a slight uphill par three as we would know it, with it, which was kind of slightly obstructed. So Clark goes first, he hits a shot, and he just hits it right on the screws. And by the way, I don't even think we even had screws on clubs, so <laughs> new term for them. Uh, and his, his instincts tell him that his ball was hit too well, that it's going to fly the green. And it's a little bit of a Oh, what would you have it? Just 
kind of an island, not an island green per se, but kind of a punch bowl green just kind of sitting up high. Ball he feels is long, can't see it. Next up, his playing partner hits a shot and it finishes on the putting surface. So now both players walk up to the green and they start searching for Clark's ball. So they go beyond the green, they're looking all over the place, can't find it. Eventually, time runs out and Robert Clark concedes the hole. Oh. His buddy pops, puts in anyway, only to find that his ball was in fact inside the cup. You gotta check the cup. He lost the hole and the match by, yep, hole in one. Now, it's my understanding today that if you find, even after that time expires, if you find that ball in the hole, it's still a one. But back then, not the case. The second story comes from us in the 1940s. And this one's told by Reverend H.C. Moore at Bromwich Links. I believe that's in England. And it's the story of two brothers that are paired up against each other in match play. Both brothers get to a par three, again, slightly blind shot, and hit the best shots of their lives. Slightly blind, so they know they're in a good position. They walk down to the green, both balls are gone. They look into the hole, and both balls are in the hole. Each one of them hit a hole in one. So the hole is, the, you know, the hole is matched, or it's halved, right? Not the case. Uh, just because of handicap purposes, one brother had to give the other one a stroke on the hole. Whoa. So he lost the hole because of his handicap. That's not even the best story, though. My favorite one is this one. So this is in the 1950s. And I, and I dare anybody to think of a, a better way to lose a hole-in-one. So I asked this on Twitter. No one came up with this version. This is a decade later in the 1950s on the fourth hole at Walsall Golf Club. So again, much like the story in the past, the green is slightly obstructed. We have two players hitting shots into greens, and they're playing at a club competition. This time it's Dr. E. Grice versus Mr. L. Watson. Players, the both of them. Both players hit, yeah, well, they're, you know they're players, right? They're playing the club championship. <laughs> they're feeling good about themselves. They hit identical tee shots into the par three, slightly obstructed. When they make to their way to the green, they see that only one ball is on the green and it's a couple feet from the hole. And both of them celebrate. Then they realize that there is another ball in the hole. And again, both of them celebrate because both times they think it's my ball, I hit a better nude it. So they get up and they examine the ball and they both celebrate again. The problem is, both players had failed to mark their ball. They were playing the identical brand, style, and number. Ugh. So ultimately, they had no choice. They had to claim their balls were both lost, go back to the tee, and play the hole again. Oh. So one of them lost with a hole-in-one, and nobody knows which one. That's a good one. That, that's, I mean, that's crazy. I, that's a good story. That is wild. So always mark your ball, folks. Always mark your mark ball. Mark your ball. Get that Sharpie out. I stamp my ball with a little uh, Scottish line. You got to do it. Mark your ball, folks. Oh, that is crazy. That's nuts. Mark your ball. Mark your ball. And if you're playing Tom, use the, Scot use the Scottish line. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't, don't use the Scottish line. Um, <laughs> on a title with Pro V1. As my journey continues and rolls onward, I'm headed down to Texas. And I'm actually going to visit the course where they filmed Tin Cup. Uh, I believe it's called Tubac or Tubac. So I'm excited for that. Basically, I want to go there and play the hole where, you know, Kevin Costner hits a thousand balls into the, into the water. Yeah, Roy McElroy. Yeah. Yeah, right. So I want to go, I want to go that, do that 
I want to actually see if I can get a driver or a three wood to spin backward like it did in the movie. <laughs> That's like the dumbest thing in, in golf cinema. But nonetheless, I know you have some stories about some real life tin cups. So the real life, and, and amazing to me, this is uh, a major champion. This is a Hall of Famer who did this. And, and, and he did it one week after his U.S. Open victory at Oakmont. And the legend I speak of is Tommy Armour, who went all Roy McElroy on the golf world at the Shawnee Open in 1927. Now, you have to imagine he's, he's coming off a tremendous high. He's got his caddy with him. They're playing the Shawnee Open. They're excited. They come up to this longish par five with out of bounds on the right-hand side. And Armour instructs his caddy. Now, you have to remember, like, Tommy Armour became one of the greatest golf instructors of all time after his playing career. Uh, he was famous. So he walks up to this par five, and he instructs his caddy He's going to hit a power draw over the corner, over the OB, and into the fairway. And his caddy, bravely enough, quietly argues for the safer route. Hit the fade. So Armour shrugs it off, right? He pulls out his driver and pushes the ball dead OB. So again, the caddy grabs the ball, puts it in his hand, and, and politely pleads his case for the fade. Armour, again, insists that the shot calls for a draw and hits a second shot, OB. Then he hits a third. Then he takes a ball out of the bag and hits his fourth OB. Then he takes another ball out of the bag, hits his fifth OB. Then a sixth, then a seventh, then an eighth, then a ninth. <laughs> and on the 10th shot, he hits this perfect little sweeping draw into the middle of the fairway over the OB. And he reportedly looks at the caddy dead in the eyes without a smirk or any frown of, 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 of you know, jocularism and says, I told you it required a draw. Armour records a 23 on a par five, which I believe to this day is the highest single score in PGA Tour history. The legend, Tommy Armour. Wow, 23. If you think that 23 is the number to beat, another major, major championship winner actually topped it. In the 1969 Al Golfer of the Year Championship, and that winner of this sad award, I suppose, is Kel Nagel who won the Open Championship. Now, Kell in fact shot an 18-hole round of 70 and yet recorded a 35 on the ninth hole. Think about that one for a second. So the issue here is Kell's marker, he was playing with a marker that day, actually, accidentally wrote an, on, the, on the score for a, the ninth hole, wrote in the overall score for nine holes and put him down for a 35 on the ninth hole. Now, Nagel, right, didn't check the scorecard, signs it, and ends up with a score of 105. That is when awesome. When he technically shot a round of 70. And that marker, that marker has yet to be seen. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure the marker's fine, folks. I don't think Kel killed him, but yeah. And that's so... Oh, that is so great. Yeah, I was 35. I was marking my card today, and you see that spot, that spot right there, you know, you're adding up the back nine. And you could you could make that mistake. Who doesn't do that, right? No, but then you know, right, but but then you got you know check your card, yeah, check your card, mark your ball, yeah. check your card. You know, oh that is great. Oh I love that thirty five on a hole. Oh that's so funny. Oh, brutal. We're talking a lot about slow play and our player is going to get fined, and so that's kind of a big subject now. Um, what kind of stories from the world of penalties or slow play do you have for us? So this is uh, proof that major championships 
major champions aren't always the clean-cut heroes we see on TV. That's how I preface this. So this one, this story is about Tommy Bolt, who at one time in this story lives up to the nickname Thunder. In the 1959 Memphis Open, here we had a golfer who was known for letting his clubs go through the air. And this time he let something else go through the air while waiting to tee off with a strong gallery behind the major champion. He let loose of a little bit more than a club. And his flatulence was so loud and so smelly that the tour fined him $250 for conduct unbecoming of a professional golfer. <laughs> I know. It's a true story. Now, in the next year, right? <laughs> I know. In the next year, the, I don't know if you know this, but the very next year, the PGA Tour separated from the PGA of America. And it was said that Arnold Palmer said it was partially due to Bolt's fine of why that happened. Good for Arnold Palmer sticking up for his boy. Yeah. Or for the right to, you I'm know. I'm sorry, I made that part up. To, uh, uh, <laughs> I like that part, I, though. I know, I'm sorry. I, I couldn't help myself. I know. I you historians. Said, you know, who's going to doubt the society of golf historians? I know. Fake history. No, that's, yeah, that's, that's, oh, that, that's, that's awesome. Thank God nobody's riding around in this car with me as I travel from state, state to state. There'd be, there'd be a few fines. Right. Uh, for sure. Right. But, um, but there should be some fines. Everyone's barking for fines for slow play. There are, yeah, that's a big one. Big so one. there's definitely some slow play stories out there, some legends as well. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to my friend and historian, Dr. Tony Parker, for this story. He, he reminded me of it. Uh, this one takes place in the 1991 U.S. Women's Open. And Lori Garbox, in protest of slow play, on the 14th hole, instructed her caddy to go out and order a Domino's pizza. She proved her point that play was so slow when the pizza arrived on the 17th hole, where she shared it with her group and the group in front of her, who were also waiting to play the 17th hole. Oh, good for yeah, her. Yeah, I mean, make, good for her. Think about it. You, you think about how much time that takes you to make that phone call and have it delivered. And you play, yeah. you know, just a couple holes in between. Now, that one's, that one's more of protest. This next one is what I would call um, gamesmanship. So think about it today. Let's say you're playing a match and you're playing a guy who's just, or a guy or a gal who is just slow as molasses, right? And you know going into this that they are just going to try to take you off their, your game because, you know what, they're just going to take their time. I can't go any faster. This is me playing golf. So... One of the best stories of slow play in a major championship actually happened in 1955 at the PGA Championship. And this was one of, in my opinion, one of the great stories that's kind of overlooked in golf history, specifically in a major championship final. So you have to remember, this is a couple years before the PGA Championship goes to stroke play. So we're in match play. Mm -hmm. And we have the finals. It's Doug Ford versus Kerry Middlecoff. Now, Kerry Middlecoff was known as, I think when you win majors, you're allowed to call people deliberate, but he was a very slow player. And Ford, Ford knew this, and he was infuriated that he was going to have to go up against Middlecoff because he was like, you know, I just, Ford's a fast player, Middlecoff's a slow player. How can you take advantage of this? And what Doug Ford did, in my opinion, is borderline genius, and there's no way they would allow you to do this on TV today. So in an act of gamesmanship, Doug Ford asked his son to follow in the gallery and bring a lawn chair. 
And every time Kerry got up to hit a shot, Doug Ford would sit down in the lawn chair, lawn chair and wait his turn. Every time. <laughs> every time. And you know what? Doug Ford ends up beating the slow player and winning the major. So good for him. He got a little bit of showmanship, a little bit of, uh, you know, revenge and took care of the slow player to win the major. And he got and that's a, a great story, right? He, that's a great story. And he got a seat. Yeah, got a seat. And you love to, uh, you yeah. love to hear about a slow player getting their comeuppance. No doubt about it. So I'll get into my favorite slow play story of all time. Like there will never, I don't think there'll ever be a story that will match this one. And again, a major championship winner. We have the 1924 U.S. Open champion, Cyril Walker, in this story. My, one of my favorites. So, yeah. Cyril Walker may be one of the slowest players in the history of golf. And let me give you an example of how slow he was. So, he was so slow that fellow players refused to play with him. So, most of his rounds, he went out with a marker. Think about that. Wow. You can't even get one of your fellow pros. So, it gets worse. Tournament officials knew how, how slow he was. And what they do is they'd put him in the last group of every round. No matter where he was in, in scoring, he'd be the last one to finish because it was <laughs> inappropriate to bring in anybody behind him because he'd slow him down. Well, apparently in 1929 for the LAO Open, nobody brings this up to the tournament officials and they put him in the middle of the pack. And Cyril's doing what Cyril does. He's taking his sweet time. So Ciro's playing down the fifth hole, and the tournament officials are losing their mind. And so they mention it to him on the tee box. And he's like, uh, I'm the U.S. Open champion. Do you know who I am? I don't know if he said that, but I, I like to picture him saying, do you know who I am? Um, so he says, I'm playing my way. This is how I play. Get out of my face. So he gets down the fifth hole, and the tournament officials send out two police officers to tell him to speed it up. And again, Ciro's like, to hell with you. I play my way. I paid my entrance fee. I'm playing. I'm out here to play golf today. And so Cyril just does Cyril. He gets all the way into the ninth hole, finishes the ninth hole, goes to make the turn, and right on the tee box of the 10th are standing these two large police officers who literally picked him up in the air, literally kicking and screaming, and threw him outside the gate. Where Cyril tried to come back in, one of the officers puts his hand on his chest and says, if you enter the premises again, we will arrest you. Oh so he, not God. only was he drug off the course, this is a major championship winner, drug off the course, kicking and screaming, and is told, if you enter the property again, we're going to arrest you. Now, I want you to picture that. Picture them doing that to Bryson DeChambeau, whether it be fair <laughs> or, or not, or how slow he is. I, I hate the name I'm out, but you know. Uh, you know, just imagine taking someone of Bryson's stature and dragging them out and throwing them out in the parking lot. And you know what? I think it's coming to that. I, th I, think, we're, I think we're not far off. If they're not going to penalize these slow players, I think we might. I'm all for getting the authorities involved, for sure. I, I think uh, he probably learned his lesson. You know, funny enough, Tom, I, had, I just did a podcast on the history of slow play. And basically... In the podcast, I just said, listen, I realize that everyone thinks this is a modern day thing, but it goes back almost as far as the written word. And initially in the 20s, we were talking about the officials of the USGA were talking about uh, like literally going out to the course, pulling the person off and just disqualifying them. And that was the threat. And it never happened. And then we came back to like a two stroke penalty and fines. And 
all these things. And ultimately, nobody had the guts to actually pull the trigger. So we've never seen that rollback of slow play. Yeah. And, that's, and now it's kind of an epidemic, right? Totally an epidemic. So let's set a terrible precedent. I mean, but this idea of just, hey, you know, you're slow, you're out. Not two strokes, you're done. I, I'd love that. Yeah. You know, that works for me yeah. for sure. And you know, what's interesting about that is I was at Aquanic yesterday and they had the T-sheet from the U.S. Amateur that was there. I think in 1914, Francis, we met one. Um, yeah. And what Amazing. was cool, yeah, what was cool about the tea sheet is they were going off in five minute tea times. I was like, no, you know, yeah. 905, oh, yeah. 910, yeah. 915. Yeah, there was probably slow play then. But I probably I judging from that, I, I wonder if players were, you know, at least in playing two man matches, that they were playing a little more quickly. They would have had to been. Yeah, there I I had a story from the uh British Amateur Championship where um it was at St. Andrews. Gosh, what year would that have been? I want to say it was like 1935. I'm probably wrong on that. Somewhere around that realm, though. And uh, the expectation from St. Andrews was two players, match play championship should be done with a round in two and a half hours. Bang. And Love it. you know what? It was from the 1950s because Bill Campbell was one of the offenders um, uh, from the United States team. And I believe he played his round in three and a half hours. And British officials were just losing it, just losing their minds at how meticulous the American players were. And, and if you look back at all of the, the rhetoric going back and forth, that uh, gets quite contentious. Uh, the U.S. is always to blame uh, for the meticulous and slow play. However, uh, by, I'd say, the 1940s and 1950s, they start ripping their own players for emulating uh, American slow play because Americans were seeing progress from that slow play. They were shooting lower scores, be that because they were more meticulous or we were better players. It, it's really, you know, nobody really yeah. knows. It's tricky. So I just think I, I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is kind of a fascinating subject, actually, when you put it in that light that, you know, that if it starts to change the way People are scoring and winning and, and playing the game. Um, well, there certainly has to be a balance. But I like this turn of our conversation to people getting in trouble. I know you have just a couple more stories of folks who have bucked the trend. So um, I like this one a lot, uh, probably because I identify the person as a uh, one of our better or best uh, golf course architects. And that was the man who first wore shorts on the PGA Tour. So in 1983, Forrest Fesler, which was Maverick design, he did uh, Tobacco Road, and he did the, uh, uh, the redesign of Monterey Country Club. And uh, Forrest Fesler... Yeah, so he's Mike Strand's partner. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That's our Golfers Journal subscribers. We'll be reading about that as well. So that's very appropriate. So Forrest, uh, unbeknownst to many, perhaps, he was the first man ever to wear shorts on the PGA Tour in a PGA Tour-sanctioned event. And he wasn't even fined for it. So what he did that was brilliant, I think, is he found a loophole. Um, mm. He essentially realized that in the U.S. Open, which was a USGA book, there was no rule in the USGA rule book about a dress code. So up until 1983, the USGA does not have any rules specifically for dress in their championships. So Forrest, rather than being too bold, he waited until his final round 
and on the 18th hole at the U.S. Open at Oakmont Country Club in 1983, he ducks into a porta potty right on the first tee and comes out wearing shorts. Now, unfortunately, it's 1983. They're not just shorts, but they're short shorts. So they're a little bit of Daisy Dukish, I hate to say. So if you look up the photos, I apologize straight off the bat. You'll see Force Fessler uh, and his very hairy legs, very hairy long legs because of the short shorts. And he played the final hole wearing shorts and then made a run for the exit. I don't, I don't know what he expected to happen, uh, but he was the first and the last man to wear shorts in a PGA Tour sanctioned event. God, God bless him. He passed away he, that's just right, recently. So I thought it was a good way to, that is. to end God with God bless story. him. And this stuff is awesome. I just, I love the, uh, you know, it's one thing to sit down and read a history book, but you, you know, the stories you've shared with us, it's the kind of stuff that, you know, as I'm going around to these clubs, it's, they're the stories people want to share that they want to hear. They want to hear the curiosities. And uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time today to share some of your great ones with us. Oh, you bet. Keep learning. Keep sharing. Yeah. What I'll tell people, Tom, is this, is that the whole key for the Society of Golf Historians and the Talking Golf History podcast is literally to bring fun history to people. It's not about, you know, me lecturing or saying it's always fun. To, you know, I'm not the, the old man with a monocle. I try to find interesting human stories that all golfers will find interesting. And that's kind of the key to making it relatable is finding things that either are funny, like the stories we shared today, or perhaps tying in bits of history to what we're seeing on the PGA Tour and the majors today. Have fun, right? It's just a game. Exactly. That's what, Have fun. We have to remember that in everything we do with golf. So, Connor, thank you so much. Everyone, check out Society of Golf Historians on Twitter. Check out the podcast. And thanks again, my friend. I hope we have the chance to tee it up. We were going to tee it up here in Vermont, but... It'll happen again at some point, I'm sure. Absolutely. All right, take care, Connor. Be well. Thank you. 